0: Welcome to the BPL Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Laser, and I'm here with a very special guest today, Nina Thomas. Nina, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, So Nina is the manager of the Westerville History Center and Museum, and she is presenting a program tonight at the library titled Prohibition, 100 Years Later. So we're going to do this podcast and kind of give an overview of what she's going to talk about tonight at the program, um, all about prohibition and its local roots. So Nina, can you give us a background on how Prohibition came to be?
1: Yeah, so um, Prohibition... as we when we talk about it, is alcohol prohibition, so we had it in our country from 1920 to 1933, um, where it was illegal to buy or sell alcohol. And so when we talk about prohibition, that's the period we're talking about. Um, but its roots really start in the temperance movement. Um, the temperance movement starts in about 1820, um, and the peak of drinking in the country we saw in 1830. Uh, people were drinking um, about seven gallons of liquor per person per year, which The drinking rates today are about a third of that, if that gives you any idea of how much people were drinking. They (laughs) were drinking a lot. Um, And so it became an issue for a lot of people um, in this country. It was a social issue. Other things that were going on at the time, for example, women didn't have the right to vote. They had very they didn't a lot of them didn't work outside the home, and so if their husband was drinking, um, all of their money, their family could be destitute, and so it becomes a social concern at that time, where they wanting to right this wrong, and so a lot of people got involved in the temperance movement. But then we have the Civil War right in the middle of that, and you know the 1880s, and so people who were involved in the temperance movement, a lot of them got involved, rightfully so, in abolition and um, wanted to see um, slavery abolished. And so after that, then we see people kind of looking for the new social issue to get involved in. And so the temperance movement kind of picks up again. And so as it picks up, you see a lot of groups start to form um, in the 1880s and 1890s that are involved in temperance, um, which really is involved in that prohibition movement, where they want to see alcohol become banned or illegal um, because they are seeing so many people drinking and a problem with drinking. And so it kind of has its roots in the temperance movement.
0: And so... So this temperance movement, um, like as far as the demographics, like what, what does that look like?
1: Actually, it was a lot of people. It was women. It was men. It was um, churchgoers. Um, mm-hmm. It was a... Largely grassroots church movements. Um, when we flash forward to the group called the Anti-Saloon League, they were formed in 1893, and they believe they said that they were a church in action against the saloon. So, they really relied on churchgoers as their base. Um, but it was a, it was anyone who you know the temperance movement was filled with people who just wanted to see um, America be temperate, um, which mm-hmm. was a lot of churchgoers, Protestants, um, but you know a lot of women, men. Probably some children. <laughs>
0: gotcha, yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and you So you mentioned the Anti-Saloon League. So they have ties in, in Westerville, is that right?
1: Yes, so the Anti-Saloon League was founded in Ohio um, by a man named Howard Hyde Russell um, who believed in, um, it's called anti-saloon and not anti-alcohol, which I think is significant. They named it that because they were interested in not just getting rid of alcohol. They wanted to get rid of the establishment that had not just alcohol in it, but prostitution and gambling. And so they kind of associate all the evils of society that ha- in the saloon. They blamed it for divorce. They blamed it for child desertion. They blamed it for crime. So anything that was wrong in society is this institution of a saloon. So they become the anti-saloon league um, and they get they get pretty going pretty fast um, and they get a lot of support a lot of money um, and they're very successful so they manage to persuade cities and towns states and counties to vote themselves dry and then they get to a a point where they realize okay we've pushed this kind of local movement as far as it can go and now we're going to have to force the rest of the country to go dry and that's going to require an amendment to the constitution and so that's how they end up in Westerville they look for they're looking for a a place to do their printing center Um, and so 1909 they come to Westerville. Westerville Promoted themselves as the model town, they sent them this document that said, "You know, we're you know we're the picture of idealism. We're pure. You know, come to us." Um, we also gifted them ten thousand dollars worth of land and a house, um, and that's actually currently where the public library is today. And that's a little bit of a longer story, but we ended up with their archives. We have their old building, but that's where they were. Um, and that's where they started printing and shipping propaganda and their printed pieces. And they were successful because they managed to persuade the nation to vote for prohibition. And then we had it. So they were clearly successful.
0: Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I had no idea of that local history. Um, you know, right here in Yeah. yeah right here Ohio. in Westerville. So I guess this is a bit subjective, but do you think that, because uh, you mentioned the temperance movement um, or the anti-saloon league was specifically anti the the saloon as an institution mm-hmm. and everything that was wrong with society like was was basically stemming from that? Was it just sort of like an easy out? Maybe, maybe like people didn't want to look deeper at societal issues and it was kind of an easy like, oh, well, people are getting drunk at the bar and... Misbehaving, like, that's the problem right there. Right. That's the it's, only problem. Yeah,
1: I think it's an easy target. I think it was easy to, to link that. And I think you're kind of hitting the nail on the head because you see the way the Anti-Saloon League framed it is if you look at some of their printed pieces, they used all sorts of things. They used science. They used um, – so they would have scientific facts like, you know, this many people – die every year from this um, due to alcohol, um, or they would have what we call emotional appeals, which would be a girl in rags with a broken window at home alone while her dad is in the bar drinking. And so it's it was a very visual way to say, hey, look at all of this terrible stuff that's going on, and it's clearly the alcohol is the problem and the saloon in general. Um, and you have World War One, and World War One, um, it they really used that to their advantage because they linked the brewers to the Kaiser because they, we had a lot of German brewers. I mean, we have German Village here in, town, in Columbus and mm-hmm. it's like they linked that to, you know, how could you support the Kaiser? Um, and so they used a lot of different things and it really gets people to kind of blame the saloon and alcohol for society's problems. And I think... Um, The anti saloon League promised utopia. They promised, if you vote for this, we're not going to have any problems anymore. And really, unfortunately, that's not what happened. And uh, that's why it failed. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah,
0: Yeah, wow. I mean, yeah, it sounds like they used such a sort of like diverse and comprehensive approach. They did. (laughs) So it makes sense as to why, you know, it was eventually passed. Can you talk a little bit about like the proliferation of speakeasies? Um, during this time?
1: Yeah, so um, we have an exhibit at the library that we've called um, Prohibition Expectation Versus Reality. And we call it that because as the Anti-Saloon League promised utopia on Earth, I don't think they really expected that people would keep drinking. I think they really thought that if we make it illegal, people are law-abiding citizens, like they're going to follow the law. Um, But that's not what happened. Saloons, saloons, Instead of becoming, you know, closing their doors, just turned into speakeasies Um, and people kept drinking. And the interesting thing about a speakeasy was because it was already illegal, you start to see more of societal boundaries break down. For example, in the saloons, women were mostly not allowed in a saloon, but in a speakeasy, it's already illegal, You can't say who... I mean, women are going into the speakeasies. Mm -hmm. You also see um, black musicians in speakeasies where there used to be a lot more segregation. And so speakeasies are interesting because they kind of... The saloons, you know... They didn't go away. They just became speakeasies. Um, and so more and more people are continuing to go there and drink. And really nothing changed a whole lot. Actually, I think people drank more <laughs> because <laughs> it was women in there as well as men. Whereas before, women, was kind of looked down on for them to be drinking. But it became more socially acceptable for them to drink. And so you not only see men, but you see women. <laughs> you see everyone drinking.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So it's almost like, in a way, encouraging these illicit activities because you're like already breaking the law so exactly <laughs> why not break Ex- some more exactly. laws exactly like, exactly huh wow yeah are there any um we actually we just had a program last night at the library about um medical marijuana and okay. how it's it's legal in, in Ohio now and so do you see i know it's a little bit different because you know it's not like marijuana was was legal and then was you know repealed or uh, prohibited and then right. that whole thing but I, I thought of this because you said, "Well, it's not like because it was illegal, people stopped doing it. Clearly, you know, people smoke marijuana." So, right? Do you see any any ties between those two issues at all? Or
1: I definitely, I've been asked that question a lot, and I feel like there's a lot of ties between it. Um, I think there's lessons to be learned from the era of prohibition in that if you make just because you make something illegal, as you said, does not mean people aren't going to continue to do it, especially if they think it's okay. Um, people most. People did not think that there was anything wrong with drinking. And so I think that's why they continued to do it. And I think it's the same with marijuana. Alcohol was a little different in that people used it for communion in their churches. They used it um, at home with dinner and they used it for medicinal purposes, which I know marijuana can be used for medicinal purposes as well. But alcohol was just so much a part of our culture in so many ways that Mm -hmm. it was, it's hard to make something like that illegal when you think it cures headaches and when, you know, it was just so um, it was just so much evolved in our culture. Um, but I do think if you make something illegal you put on a high demand for it and when you have something on high demand, you're gonna have people rise up and meet that demand and so you're gonna have increased crime. You're going to have people taking advantage of that. I mean that's why we had so many gangsters and crime during prohibition is because you really, you make it illegal and now you have all these people trying to profit off of that. And I think mm-hmm. that's what we see with marijuana as well as people profiting off of it because it's illegal and people continuing to do it anyways. Um, I did have someone ask me though, um, this is an interesting fact about prohibition. So the American Medical Association in 1917 came out with a statement that said that um, there was no scientific evidence that alcohol did anything for your body, like for medicinal purposes. They basically said there's no it doesn't do anything. But once Prohibition gets approved, they come out with a statement that lists like over 30 ailments that could be helped with with alcohol. And the reason was the Volstead Act, which is what Prohibition... Um, enforced Mm -hmm. was that you could get alcohol for only two There was only two exceptions it was for religious purposes or medicinal purposes and so they came out with this statement totally rejecting what they had said before and saying oh you know this will help with cancer this will help with headaches this will help with pretty much anything and so um, someone asked me when I told them that they said do you think that the marijuana industries are saying that are coming out with all these reasons that it helps because they want to make it legal again, or they want to make it available. And I did not make that connection at all until he said that, and I thought, well, I don't know. It's possible because they definitely did that with alcohol. They definitely said it helps your high blood pressure just so people could go in and say, I have high blood pressure, give me some alcohol. And I, I don't know, I'm not sure, but it was an interesting perspective to say, is that what's going on with marijuana? I don't know, but I thought it was an interesting point.
0: That's extremely interesting, actually. Yeah, I've never, I um, have made that connection. I didn't know about that, you know, um, happening with Prohibition. Wow. What would you say are some of the the long-term consequences of of Prohibition?
1: Yeah, I think there's quite a few. Um, One thing leading up to Prohibition, um, the Anti-Saloon League helped um, support another amendment to the Constitution that a lot of people don't think about, but it was the income tax. And so it was actually not legal. They had income tax for temporary purposes um, during wartime, but it was never a permanent thing. Mm -hmm. Once that amendment was passed, then they realized they could go for prohibition because alcohol was the fifth largest industry in the country and it was taxed heavily. And so the government was getting all those taxes. They weren't going to just give that up. They had Mm -hmm. to have a replacement. And so the income tax was the replacement for that. Um, And so the government or government officials could easily say, okay, we could could support prohibition if we have another source of revenue. Of course, prohibition's repealed, but the income tax isn't, right? Mm -hmm. So now they are not only getting the alcohol taxes now, but also income tax. So I I think the income tax is a long-term effect um, because it was all wrapped up in that movement. Um, Some of the other things that came out of Prohibition that are just kind of interesting. uh, We have NASCAR um, because they were developing that's from Prohibition. (laughs) They were developing cars that could outrun. Um, so bootleg gang so they were trying to outrun the police and so they developed faster cars and NASCAR comes out of that Speedboats, same thing they were trying to they needed smaller faster boats to get that alcohol in and out quick um, Caribbean cruises actually because people just pretty much cruises were from New York to England uh, people didn't do Caribbean cruises but it was legal to drink on the seas and you could drink when you were in Cuba and so Kind of the booze cruise got started, I would say, (laughs) during Prohibition. And now, I mean, I don't know anyone that hasn't been... I mean, a lot of people go on Caribbean cruises and Mm -hmm. really got started during that time. Um, Jazz music got going strong during Prohibition and the speakeasy days. And so there's a lot of like interesting things that come out of it. Um, Kind of on a negative side, I sat through a presentation at OSU about um, policing during the Prohibition era and how policing changed drastically because the inmate population increased by 541%. Oh, my gosh. Which is a lot yeah. of people being arrested. Um, and so you have kind of mass incarceration going on and mass illegal activities. And because of that, the police start doing different things where they start, search, you know, seizing, searching and seizing and they kind of have more permissions during that time that, never went away and so basically they were given permission to enforce a law that we no longer have and so some of the permissions they were given probably should have been repealed but they weren't and so it was actually at a law at the law school osu where they were discussing it and i thought it was just fascinating that we don't even think about it i mean it's rare that we have an amendment that's been repealed and Mm -hmm. so I think that's why it was interesting to me is that all that stuff got started and um, so yeah I mean there's quite a bit of things and during that time uh, they pitted the rural people against the urban people they pitted us against immigrants because immigrants would traditionally go to saloons and drink uh, as a social thing and so people who you know were part of the temperance movement were like oh, all those immigrants drinking and so it kind of had a negative kind of connotation with it. And I think some of those things have lasted a lot longer than the prohibition era.
0: Yeah. Well, I would have never guessed that, you know, it had all those effects and, you know, potential effects. Yeah. I guess it's, it's just one of those like great, um, cases of like, you know, nothing happens in a vacuum. So no, like, yeah. you can't just, you know, outlaw the fifth biggest industry in the U S for a handful of years and then take it, you know, <laughs> right and then, and, and then it all goes back to normal everything just the way it was before. yeah so. no
1: it definitely changed things
0: yeah wow as far as um you know the availability like let's say local and regional alcohol laws and, and whatnot um, like dry counties or mm-hmm. things like that did most of that stem from from this era as well or and,
1: i mean definitely a lot of things changed um so Basically, it went back to the similar to the way it was before. So towns and cities and states, based on the state and how their laws are, would determine whether some, you know, how you determine if something's dry or wet. In Westerville, we are site specific, which means every time an establishment wants to have a liquor license, we vote on that establishment. Um, Whereas in other states like Kentucky, for example, I know that they have counties where it's a dry county or a wet county. Mm -hmm. And so it was really by state. The amendment kind of overruled all of that because it was federal. And it was like, well, everybody's dry. Um, But after that, Westerville, for example, I'm just I know their history, so I can talk about them. Mm -hmm. They vote after the um, prohibition was repealed. Um, they had we had alcohol in our town for in 1933 for about seven months. So there was a there was a pool hall uptown that served beer, um, but Westerville voted itself dry in November. So then it became we were dry until 2004. So we were dry for a really long time. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was right after the repeal. States and cities and counties could decide how they wanted to be dry or wet, um, and so. It was basically based on that, but yeah, we still see dry counties today. We still see um, dry cities, um, just based on the state and how it is. I know I was out in Utah, and their liquor laws and are different. You have to, if you buy alcohol, you have to buy food with it. So you can't just order a drink. You have to, um, you have. They'll just put on your bill like chips and salsa, like the, for a dollar. Like they'll just add food to it because they're not they're not allowed to sell you alcohol without selling food. So. There's all sorts of laws and they're all different. And it definitely changed the laws with how liquor is made. Um, if you ever go to a distillery or a brewery, you'll hear them talk about the rigorous laws that they have that they're under about how they have to do everything. Um, and so it definitely there's a lot more legislation that came out of it to kind of, I guess, rein in how, what is allowed and what isn't allowed.
0: Wow. Yeah. Well, Nina, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I think we're running a bit short of time. Um, but yes, thank you for coming in early to do the podcast and doing the program tonight. Yeah, I'm happy to. So thanks for listening to the BPL podcast. We'll see you next time.